Hey, if you want to give an overview, Becca, of what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, we're making connections from last week's show um, to continue discussing people who are organizing in the streets and throughout the world um, and trying to make connections to a global struggle for justice. It seems that the impetus for struggle is the same everywhere. The wealthy are capturing the massive protests while the people are left to struggle amongst themselves in an ever divided and polarizing climate. From Lebanon to Latin America and here to the U.S. in Chicago, people are coming together, protesting, striking, and demanding change to existing economic, political, and social systems. And so we wanted to start the show today with a clip from Naomi Klein. Um, a lot of the, the reading we've been doing recently and news we've been watching, all of us together, um, has been talk of austerity measures and austerity measures being a heavy tax on the people, t uh, drawing money out of public funding um, and the privatization of a lot of our public sectors. So that's happening here in the U.S., but also across the world. And so Naomi Klein, who wrote The Shock Doctrine, goes, to goes into describing what the shock doctrine is and what neoliberal policies imposed by the Washington consensus um, have done to people across the world. It came out of uh, reporting that I was doing in Iraq after the invasion, the first year of occupation. Um, but I guess it dates back earlier than that. that I, I happened to have been in Argentina making a documentary film when the war in Iraq began. And it was a really amazing time to be in Latin America. This was 2002, 2003. And this was, I guess, the beginning of what we now think of as this pink tide that has swept Latin America. But it was, it was a moment in, in Latin American history, certainly a moment in Argentinian history, um, where the economic model that Latin Americans call neoliberalism, uh, Americans call the free market. Um, but, but these policies of privatization, free so-called free trade, deregulation in the interests of corporations, deep cuts to social spending, healthcare and education cuts, things like that. Um, in Argentina, they actually just call this El Modelo, the model. Everybody knows what the model is. It's the so-called Washington Consensus. It's the policies that have been imposed on Latin America, first through military dictatorships, then as conditions attached to loans uh, that were needed during economic, the economic crisis, the so-called debt crisis of the, of the 1980s. Um, when I was in Argentina, the, the model was collapsing, and Argentinians overthrew five presidents in three weeks. So it was this moment of incredible uh, tumult and political excitement because people were trying to figure out what would come next. But it, was, it, it went beyond Argentina. In, in Bolivia, they hadn't yet elected Evo Morales, but there had been these huge protests against water privatization, and Bechtel had just been thrown out of Bolivia. And in Brazil, they had just elected Lula. And of course, Chavez was already in pow power in Venezuela, but he had successfully uh, uh, um, overcome an, a, a coup attempt. He had been brought back to power. So there were all of these things going on in Latin America that were all connected in this rejection of this economic model. So to be in Latin America when the invasion of Iraq began was a really unique vantage point uh, to, to, from which to watch the war. I'm very grateful to have had that experience, to have been able to watch that 
through the eyes of my Latin American friends who saw the war so differently from, from, from the way it was seen, I think, by so many of us in North America. They saw a real connection between their rejection of these economic policies and the fact that the same economic program was being imposed in Iraq through tremendous violence. And you really saw and felt those connections in Latin America. You know, Bechtel, just thrown out of Bolivia, suddenly sh shows up in Baghdad with the exclusive contract to rebuild their water system. Uh, and it, it, what it felt like was that, was that there was a change going on, that this model that had been imposed coercively, though peacefully, through uh, the International Monetary Fund, through the World Bank, through uh, the World Trade Organization, that that wasn't working anymore. People were rejecting it, that the legacy of these policies, the legacy of inequality was so dramatic that the sales pitch of just wait for the trickle down wasn't working anymore. And so now there was this new phase, and it wasn't even asking, and it wasn't negotiating. It was just imposing through raw violence. And that's where I came up with a thesis for the book, which is that we have entered this new phase that I'm calling disaster capitalism, or, or the shock doctrine, using a shock, in this case the shock and awe invasion of Iraq, to impose what economists call economic shock therapy. So I think it was, it was definitely that experience of, of seeing it from Latin America, a, a, a continent in revolt against these, these policies, that made it easier to identify this as a new phase. And, I, and, and once I identified that, I started to see these patterns recurring. Uh, after the Asian tsunami, there was a very similar push to use the shock of that natural disaster to push through, once again, these same policies, water privatization, electricity privatization, labor market flexibilization, displacing poor people uh, on the coasts with hotel developers. Um, so a sort of social re-engineering of society in the interests of corporations, which I think is what we've been doing under the banner of free trade, but now it's under the banner of post-disaster reconstruction. Well, if we look at the history of the advancement of this really quite radical economic model of privatizing key state assets, um, deep cuts to, to, to these key social spending areas that people tend to protect, like healthcare and education, uh, uh, or, or these reforms to labor laws that take away protections, take away pensions, take away um, the, the safety net. Um, what we know is that when politicians try to do this during normal circumstances, people tend to organize and resist because they like their health care systems and they actually like uh, you know, ha having labor protections. So, there, so the use of crisis for political ends has been a part of the advancement of this ideology in, 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 in many lesser ways. You know, in my country, in Canada, uh, we have a public health care system, we have a pretty strong social safety net. This is really how we distinguish ourselves from the United States. We lost a lot of these protections in the mid-90s, not because Canadians wanted to. In fact, they had just elected a liberal government that ran on a, the, the platform slogan, jobs, jobs, jobs. Um, but we ended up getting uh, an austerity budget with deep cuts to a lot of these social protections because there was a debt crisis. And this is a, that's another kind of a shock. And it was very sort of really hyped in the media. If we think back to, you know, it's true in the United States as well, this, this um, 
endless rhetoric that you know our countries are going to go bankrupt unless we do deep, deep you know, welfare reform or unemployment reform of unemployment insurance. So what so what what I do in the shock doctrine is I take another look at the 35 years of history in which this economic model has really swept the globe from you know, former Eastern Bloc countries, China, Latin America, Africa, and North America. And I look at how crisis, various different kinds of crises, have facilitated the advancement of this ideology, have prepared the ground. What I'm arguing in the book is that the shocks are getting bigger. Uh, that that that, it, that that a debt crisis no longer does the trick, or a hyperinflation crisis no isn't enough to disorient a whole society and let them allow them to or convince them to accept their bitter medicine. Uh, that there needs to be something more disorienting. And so, what we're seeing now is that bigger shocks are being harnessed. But I do believe that crisis is required to rationalize policies that would be rejected under normal circumstances. It's not a secret that uh, people do protect uh, those policies that make their lives easier. Well, my, my argument is not uh, that, that no one benefits. Um, my argument is that uh, the legacy of this economic system is tremendous inequality. It's an opening up. Of a, of, a, of, a, of a gap, uh, um, a gaping gap between the haves and the have-nots. And that's certainly the case in China. That's certainly the case in India. Um, and, and, and in both countries, you have governments that have identified inequality as the great, their greatest cha political challenges, challenges to, to what, what the Chinese call social stability. Uh, because you know, when you have such a dramatic gap, uh, b between a, a peasant um, still living on a dollar a day and the, the super rich who are part of the kind of Davos stratosphere, um, it creates a tremendous level of resentment and instability within the country. So in China, they're seeing uh, uh, un unprecedented levels of, of protest for, you know, for, the, for the, this era. They had 87,000 protests a year for the past, well, starting in 2005, and they've been going, the number of protests have been going up and up, which has required more and more surveillance, more and more repression, particularly in the run-up to the Beijing Olympics, a lot of concern about this instability. So I think the difficulty really about, about this economic model or free trade is, is generalizing the idea that you can just talk about, is it good for China or is it good for India? It's definitely it's good for a lot of people in India. It's good for a lot of people in China. It's brutal for a lot of people in both of those countries because part of these policies require displacement in the name of mega projects, um, in the name of building a new export processing zone. So a huge part of this economic model requires displacing millions of people from where they live. So then they become migrants. Where do they go? Well, they go to the cities first, and they move to the slums. And so, you know, the flip side of this economic model uh, uh, of, the, of the sort of dazzling version of the, the world is flat is the explosion of, of slum dwellers with the projections that one in three people in the world will be living in slums uh, within, it, within the, the next decade. Uh, so, you know, this is, you know, you really can't make these generalizations. And that's, that's what we know from having lived with these economic policies now for some three decades. I think in the early stages of this economic transformation, it was possible to just use the, the language of, of 
GDP and you know, growth is going to trickle down and all the promises uh, that, was, that were a part of the first phase of this expansion. But now you have all these parts of the world that have actually tried it, right? And the, the legacy in Latin America is this legacy of, of, of following the rules countries like Argentina, which were held up as the model students in the 90, the model students of the International Monetary Fund, and then so much inequality, so much capital flight, that 60% of the population fell into poverty. So that's why the model's in crisis. The model's in crisis because people have a track record, and they can measure the rhetoric against the reality. All right, welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio. And today we are discussing um, uprisings across the world in response to austerity. That was Naomi Klein, an interview from 2012, and she was discussing the impact um, of, of austerity models imposed on worlds across the country by the IMF and also by their own uh, ruling governments. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it makes a lot of sense why... Um, people are in the streets today when you see that um, whole country's production has been shifted from um, providing for the people to providing for the wealthy, such as like, what kind of crops are you going to grow, right? They're all export crops. So even when we talk about, you know, one of the big selling points for IMF coming in and giving loans is to make things... um, look good for investors and the idea is that once investors come into the country that everything will that the like she said the trickle down economics that things will get better for the people but the reality is that the um elites who are making decisions at davos which is one of the economic conferences that happen every year um are actually figuring out policies to continue to make themselves wealthy and not benefit the majority of the people in these countries. Right. And I think what she said in discussing neoliberal policies, these free market trade policies of the last, you know, three decades, um, if we can take this all the way back to world post World War Two, right, mm-hmm. when structural adjustment is essentially when the when the International Monetary Fund, the IMF and the World Bank are created mm-hmm. and these structural adjustment policies are um, imposed on countries. And so just as you're talking, there is this organization of production and specialization takes place so that certain countries only produce for export. So like in Ghana, where they produce all this cocoa, right, which is exported cheaply, and then chocolate, which is produced in other countries, is then imported and people are paying exorbitant prices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what's also interesting is all these connections that she's making, um, that she calls it the patterns that are reoccurring across the world. So you have water privatization, electric, electricity privatization, uh, the displacement of people, and essentially the social re-engineering of society to benefit corporations. And so we don't see that only across the world, but we also see that here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's making me think about um, something that we talked about on last week's show, but I think it's so important is the quote from Gandhi in 1916 <laughs> that the test of a country is not the number of millionaires it owns, but the absence of starvation amongst its masses. 
So how can we start to ask these questions as people, regardless of national borders, right? That these are the, this is the links that need to be made when the top 1% of the world's population owns 45% of the total global wealth and the bottom half of the wealth, um, bottom half of the humanity owns less than 1% of the total global wealth. You know, that's what we're talking about here. The United States has 705 billionaires while people um, in Chicago, you know, there's 17,000 children going to public schools there who are currently homeless. And so if we're not looking at economic growth as how much money a country can produce or how much money um, corporations can produce, but how well are people taken care of? That's the question for if an economy is functioning. So we're going to turn to Lebanon and Instead of playing a song, we're going to play this chant that has been ringing in the street. And so this chant is amidst this huge uprising that's taking place and has been taking place for almost a month now. So if... Welcome to back to Indigo Radio. So that was protesters in Lebanon. Um, Nick, can you tell us what they were saying? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll just read the whole the whole script out. So the call was, "Dear government, listen up. I don't have any more money. Government, listen to these words. We're broke because of you. Dear government, resign. You're worth the price of an of an argile, which is like a hookah." All the corrupted people in the country, we want you to leave. Your rule isn't legitimate. We say it with our heads held high to the Lebanese people, the free people. You're not allowed to wait anymore. You received Lebanon green. You returned it as embers. We're the ones who elected you. We're the ones who will kick you out. <laughs> so there's been ongoing protest in Lebanon since October 17th. Um, large-scale protest, of course, because there has been protests ongoing in the country for some time now. Um, and like other countries in the world, Lebanon has been in this economic crisis. So the debt accumulated post-war, which ended in 91, um, has grown and grown, and today it's reached about $85 billion. 
um, with the third largest national debt of any country in the world, and it's actually doubled since 2007. And just to put that in a little bit of pers- a little bit of perspective. In, t- in terms of what we were talking about, corporations and who owns the world. So Procter & Gamble is a U.S.-based company. It started in 1837. And in the last, uh, I'm sorry, in 2018 alone, it made in revenue $67 billion. That's wow. almost the entire debt of a, a small country. <laughs> so, um, you know, there was a lot leading up to these protests. And... The IMF, uh, which has loaned Lebanon money, had a little visit with the Lebanese government in July. And so their projections of how Lebanon can get out of its debt and grow economically, um, part, of their, part of their suggestions that they made to the government were to essentially cut spending on wages and benefits in the public sector, including education. And this is from the IMF website. Um, that it says that spending on wa- wages and benefits is often inefficient and presents opportunities for saving. Mm-hmm. So what happens after that is that there are all these imposition of taxes. And so many people are saying that that's what caused the uprising. Um, but actually right before the uprising took place and these the WhatsApp tax and the cigarette tax and the fuel tax were announced were these huge fires. There were fires all across the country, and it's a, it's a really small country. It's like 10,000 square kilometers. It's, not, it's not, a, not a big place. So the fires took place. They, there were fires everywhere. Um, many people were describing them, the fires as hell, like surrounding their, their homes. I'm sure much like what's happening in California today. Um, but if anyone's ever looked at the Lebanese flag, in the middle of the Lebanese flag is a cedar tree. And there are not many cedar forests left in Lebanon. And one of those forests is in Shouf, which is south of the capital city of Beirut. And so essentially what happened was the government didn't respond to these fires. So everyone's homes are burning and the national forests, which are so important to all the Lebanese people, no matter what their religion or sect is, they're going up in flames. Mm -hmm. And so the people find out that there's these helicopters, these firefighting helicopters that have been sitting at the airport. They have not been maintained. They don't have fuel, right? Because the budget has been cut and the Lebanese forest is on fire. So what essentially ends up happening is that people are displaced out of their homes. And, and people, those budget cuts were a part of austerity measures, you know, of how do you, you know, um, if they're taking loans from the IMF, <coughs> they're being forced to cut f- spending from other places. Yeah, for sure. Um, and... So because the state didn't respond, they also didn't respond to like the people that were suffering and being pushed out of their homes and displaced at this particular moment. And so people came together to take care of each other. People set up all of these um, shelters. People brought water. People brought food. And they started taking care of each other. And when politicians came to, for like these photo shoots, people kicked them out. 
of these of these places. And so then the WhatsApp tax and the cigarette tax happened and people, uh, this is unbearable for people. If you're poor in Lebanon, you smoke cigarettes, right? And you sit on your phone talking to your friends. So lots of people decide that they're going to go to the street. And so they go downtown Beirut. And I think that's an important way that you phrased it because the media often is trying to make it seem like this was led by some left wing or, you know, trying to discredit a movement mm-hmm. by saying it's not actually a people's movement. But like you said, it was decided amongst the masses to take to the streets without a particular direction at first. Yeah. So people were just angry, right? People are so upset. How, how are you letting the country burn? It's a really small country. It's surrounded by Syria uh, to the north and to the, to the west. And so People don't go to Syria. Syria is in war. You know, it's it's a difficult time. And then to the south, there's Palestine, which obviously the Lebanese do not have peace accords with the Israelis. And so no one's allowed to go to the south. So essentially, it's a landlocked country that's on fire. Mm. The only place to go to is the sea. And so people start walking around. People start gathering downtown. And so they decide they're going to walk all around the city. And so more and more people start to join them. And so by Octo- so the protest started on the 17th, and by the 20th, you have two and a half million people in the streets all over the country where the population is four million. And who are the people that are in the streets? So this was, this was like generally what the conversation was in, I think, the Western media, also in the Lebanese media, because the politicians were trying to scramble to hold on to power, but it's everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone is in the streets and no one is holding party flags. Everyone is holding the Lebanese flag. They've they've unified under this national banner and they've called for the end of sectarianism, which essentially has divided up the power for uh, amongst the sects Mm -hmm. post-war. And so people have called this particular um, political system a way for the rich of a particular sect to reap the benefits of a system that divides all the, the ordinary people. You know, I, that's, from my understanding, not doing a whole bunch of research, that's also what's happening in Iraq right now, people taking to the streets. Mm. You know, there was this headline on either the Washington Post or the Guardian being like, why are the um, Shiites going against their own government? Mm. And I think that's the point of the people now, that we're actually not, we're divided on more of a class basis than on these sectarian divides that have been imposed by colonial forces. Right. And that's exactly, I met an Iraqi woman this week, actually, we were talking about Lebanon and Iraq. And she was saying that before the, the invasion of Iraq, she lived next to Christians, she lived next to Shia. But all of a sudden, there became these divides where like people were literally switching houses because they didn't want to lose the real estate value of their home, but they could no longer live on the street that they lived on in Baghdad. So it's definitely being imposed from outside forces. Lebanon, Lebanese people didn't call themselves Lebanese before Sykes Spico divided up the whole Middle East for the colonial powers of Egypt and France. And so these divisions go way back. But people, because they've lived and suffered alongside one another, knowing that people are all paying for their water, for instance, in Lebanon, that there's rolling blackouts everywhere, that fuel prices are going up. That affects everyone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't only affect the Christian population or the Shia or the Sunni. 
I think the United States is the only place in the world that doesn't have people taking to the streets when our <laughs> gas prices rise. <laughs> so it's beautiful, though. The resistance, people have come together. Um, they formed this human chain about a week later that was 105 miles long, 170,000 people long. Uh, there's ongoing conversations in the street. Popular education is taking place. Um, people are talking about the Lebanese economy. People are being educated in the street by university professors about the election process. Um, and people are taking back public spaces. So downtown in Beirut, there's this huge theater. It's called The Egg. And so no one ever goes in there. It's been closed down for, since the Civil War, right? Actually, I'm sorry. I want to correct myself. It's not a civil, it was not a civil war. It was, it was a war, and there were many parties involved. Um, but so since 91, no one's been in that theater. Mm. And so people took back the theater, and they're, they're doing film screenings, and they're, ta they're talking about their situation. So it's beautiful to see all of these people come together. So I'd like to go to a song. Um, what's interesting is that in all of this time, there were many singers, Lebanese singers, um, throughout the war that had all these songs of freedom and unity. And so people now are waiting for those singers to come back to make new songs, but they haven't. And so normal people are taking to social media and um, like re-recording songs, or they're making new songs. And so this girl, Talia Lahoud, is singing a song by Fedouz called Li Beirut.
All right, welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio, and that was Talia Lahoud singing Li Beirut. So we're discussing Lebanon at this particular moment, and so I think it's important both to just say a little bit about what's happened in the last week and then also to bring it outside of Lebanon. Um, so in the last week, we've seen protesters changing tactics. At first, they were blocking the road in this general strike to shut down the country. That took place for about two to three weeks, and now because of shortages of food, of food and fuel in some places, the protesters have shifted their gatherings um, and protest to min- municipal and state buildings and electricity com- the electricity company, the telecom company, um, and the places along the coast which have been privatized and places in the cities which have been privatized. Um, and I'm speaking to Beirut specifically because I lived there for a while and so I understand that context a little bit more. But of course, this is happening across the country. So there is a law in Lebanon that you're not allowed to build on the coast. But somehow, some way, all these private companies have come in and developed the coastline in, in the city um, in a way that prevents poor people from even like reaching the coast, right? Or being able to sit in places along the coast because those cafes and resorts, all of these places are so expensive. And so people went down to those places this week to spray paint and take over those spaces and to call for um, the law to be followed, essentially. But what's interesting about this protest is that the call has been all along for all of the ministers in the government to resign. Kellon yani kellon means all of them means all of them has been the chant of the of the protests. And so in the last weeks, we've seen the government resign, um, Saad Hariri and others. Um, and so I found this article on Jacobin, and it's really interesting because I think what happens in many countries is that there's c- this call for electoral reform, right? That's, as f- that's pretty much as far as the people get. And I, I think that it's important that people get that far, especially in places that are so plagued by this tense memory of war. And division. And division, exactly. Um, but I wanted to read this quote because I think it's really important in terms of where do we go from here? So, <clears throat> the calls from some quarters for a government led by experts. This is on the argument that technical expertise stands outside the realm of politics must also be questioned. And this is in reference to the the call, the demand for technocrats in the government. What is needed is not technical expertise. In fact, technocratic experts have been present in previous governments, but a coherent encompassing political agenda that can radically overturn the current state of affairs a substantive political and economic agenda that moves beyond discussions of corruption as individual practices and attacks the deep structural inequalities embedded within the neoliberal economic model and the sectarian power-sharing political regime. And so I think that connects us also to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reading today on the IMF's website that this is according to them in 2019 that they're currently lending close to $200 billion to over 35 countries. 
And if you go through the list of countries, you see that in each of these places, there are uprisings happening against austerity. It, whether it's the raising of metro fees, right? Mm-hmm. Or the cutting of That's social... That's in Chile, right? Yeah, in Chile. And here in New York. Um, and all of these protests are being met with brutality like pure force by the military and police and i think those two go hand in hand it's like here we're going to force you to take on this economic model and when it's not working for you we're going to force you to stay within it um and ecuador or sorry not ecuador chile has been like the model of um neoliberal policies starting with the Chicago School of Economics and Milton Friedman, who kind of used Chile and the Pinochet dictatorship as a um, example of how these policies can promote quote unquote economic growth. And then we ask the question, well, economic growth for who? And mm-hmm. who does this benefit? It's clearly not benefiting the people in Chile um, because people are still in the streets. And the president is trying to give them little tokens, like they tried to do in Chicago with the teachers, saying, okay, fine, fine, fine. We'll raise the minimum wage. Okay, no, okay, fine. We'll do this, we'll do that. And Chileans are still in the street today because they're saying, no, like not until we have a full restructuring of how these this IMF policy works. Um, and for example, the IMF loan in March that Ecuador signed, I'm going moving to Ecuador just because it's very closely connected with imagining how much money is being cut from countries when they take an IMF loan. Um, they are required, the IMF loan in Ecuador required them to cut GDP spending um, by about 6%. So that's like cutting what the nation's going to spend on social programs by about 6%, which maybe doesn't sound like a lot in terms of numbers but in comparison that would be like tightening the u.s federal budget by 1.4 trillion dollars 1.4 trillion dollars of a combination of cutting spending and raising taxes so that's what's happening um, all throughout the world when we talk about imf loans it's really important to look at what's behind that loan and i think that it's important for us to also um mention right that it's not neoliberal policies that is the that are the problem they are the symptom of the problem the problem is the ways in which our economy is organized our economy is organized for the accumulation of wealth by the few and so if we have these neoliberal economic policies as an output of that accumulation then it's not just the IMF policies that we need to, to resist. It's the IMF's existence itself mm-hmm. and the existence of an economic order which prioritizes the few over the many. Mm-hmm. And so I think just thinking about the context of the Middle East, you know, the greater objective of the U.S. and their foreign policy not only in the Middle East, but also across the world, is not democracy, right? It is submission. Submission to the requirements of 
economic globalization in order for accumulation by the few that you mentioned previously that own more than 50% of the world's wealth. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a perfect moment for us to shift to Chicago because Chicago is a city of immense um, wealth disparity. Some communities right now are getting $15 million dog parts put in. And previously to the historic strike by the Chicago teachers that just recently ended, some schools didn't even have nurses in them. Um, So we're going to go to a clip. This is um, on Democracy Now! from November 1st. It's Stacey Davis-Gates, who's the um, vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union. Line with the teachers, and they won tremendous gains in their salary structure. You know, I'll be honest with you. I don't think that this could have been as transformative as... um, as monumental as it was without SEIU 73 members on the picket line with us. Those women settled their contract um, before we settled ours. And the very next day, they were on the picket lines with us. Um, The solidarity that we had with the city, with each other, was tremendous uh, in this moment. Look, this is a movement that has been percolating for the last decade in this city to bring about change that focuses on those communities that have been left behind while skyscrapers in downtown Chicago are built with taxpayer money. This is a shift in how we conceive of public resources actually helping those who need them the most. Um, This is a win for our city. This is a win for our state. This is a win for our country. Um, Stacey Davis-Gates, you're a mom of three school kids in the Chicago schools. Um, I think about that editorial that talked about this utopian version of Chicago you're looking for. Can you talk about what educational justice means? It means that black children in Chicago don't have to beg for a nurse, which is the bare minimum for most children across this country. Listen, Chicago has a very um, terrible history of racism and segregation. And when you read editorials like that, it provokes those same feelings again. Look, our children, every single child in the Chicago public schools deserves more than what we even want in this contract. This contract sets forth an infrastructure to help us fight for even more. Listen, when you can take a public subsidy and build a playground in one of the richest neighborhoods in this country and and call it a giveaway, but then make teachers pick it and strike for 10 days to get a social worker in school communities that have been ravaged by violence, poverty, unemployment, and disinvestment. There is something wrong with the priorities and values of those who are in charge. What I am saying today is that I am proud that Chicago lifted its voice in unison to say that we're going to transform the way in which we um, prioritize children in this city, our school communities in this city, and the public sector in this city. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio, and that was a Chicago teacher. You know, this movement in Chicago leading up to this strike, starting from years before the 2012 strike, is part of a general trend right now that's happening across teachers' unions. Um, and the, it's kind of put under this slogan of bargaining for the common good. So the teachers in Chicago 
They did win a lot of important gains for their working conditions. 16% across the board wage increase over the next five years with um, really progressive measures to make sure that those who are the lowest paid get the first raises. You know, I was hearing reports that people um, working in the school district who sent their children to school in the same school district were eligible for free and reduced lunch, right? And so what does that say about um, the workers and within our schools, let alone the children? Mm-hmm. Um, but they've also pushed, and this is, I think, part of the strength was that they joined up with all workers in the school. It wasn't just about teachers. It wasn't just about um, class sizes, you know, which um, they were able to win a cap on class size, which the teachers still say is not enough. They were also able to win um, a commitment for a nurse and a social worker in every school within the next five years. So huge amounts of money are being allocated to these things. I think it adds up to about $1.5 billion, um, but the teachers are still saying this is not enough. Mm. And they've been pushing for um, a couple other things that they won that are really important um, and inspiring to me as a teacher are the full-time staff to assist homeless students, the 17,000 that currently are attending Chicago public schools, more counselors, librarians, and restorative justice coordinators. And um, another big win is they've made schools and they've written into the policy that the schools are sanctuary for immigrant students. Um, And (laughs) the last one is even a right to a guaranteed right to nap time in pre-kindergarten classes. Mm. You know, so they're thinking really broadly about what does it mean to be a teacher. And part of this movement um, of social justice unions and bargaining for the common good is that schools are not isolated from the society in which they are a part of. And so they've taken, the Chicago teachers has taken on um, huge um, attention attempts to reallocate the funding from the going to the big corporations in Chicago to going to the public schools. And I think that um, one of the big things that they've asked for and that they're going to continue to push for is affordable housing, not only for new teachers, not only for teachers, but also for students. Um, And I think this is so incredible that they're able to broaden beyond what's happening in the education to see all of these things as connected um, you know, spending less money on police in schools and more money on counselors, for example. So I know that we've talked about it, Becca, but maybe for our listeners, could you vocalize um, or articulate the connections that you see between the economic policies that exist here in the U.S. and ones that we discussed earlier in the show? Yeah, I mean, there's supposedly a lack of funding, right? That's the narrative that we get that, Um, The reason why it's, I mean, I hear this in Springfield, right? It's sad. We don't want to see money cut from the budget, but it's just a reality. And then you don't move forward and you don't second guess that. And you say, okay, I guess we're going to have to make some hard cuts. And this is the conversation that we have every year with the school budget. But my question is, there, if this is the wealthiest country in the world, where is that money actually going? Mm. And the seven. 105 billionaires living in this country, I want to know how much of their taxes go towards public education as one question. The second is, um, like um, 
she was talking about, like Stacy was talking about in the about the Chicago is where where are our priorities? And right now, the majority of our money goes to to destruction. You know, it goes to subsidies for the fossil fuels industry. It goes to wars. And um, so much money is spent on the military that there's a surplus of military goods that are now being given away for free to the police departments in the United States. And it's also going to um, other forms of destruction, you know. Um, And so I think if we start thinking about um, investing in our children's future, we're going to start questioning the wars. I have a student who's going, who just joined the military. And the simple statement that I made is the government does not have your interest. You know, the government is out for their own interests and it's run by the corporations. It's run by the wealthy who make the decisions. And so I think a lot of us have to be starting to make these connections. Mm. And I would say, like, just thinking about the invasion of Iraq, which Naomi Klein mentioned in the beginning, it was all all this, you know, talk in the media about how this is national, a matter of national security and that this is, you know, they they wouldn't say it this way, but they would imply that the benefits are for all of the American people and freedom and liberty and democracy. The reality is that what's been imposed in Iraq is like a sectarian dictatorship dictatorship essentially and Chicago's still poor right so and how many kids in Chicago who quote unquote don't have any future go fight in the military Mm -hmm. and what do they come back to Mm -hmm. so all of these um, all of these discussions around the IMF around austerity around economic policy around public education and funding our schools all of these conversations are connected yeah, and I, um, we're going to go to a song now, Fight for Chicago. This is um, Chicago Teacher Part 2 by Rebel Diaz. Stay tuned. This is Indigo Radio, and we're talking about austerity and uh, social uprisings against those austerity measures. Chicago public school teachers are officially on strike. We're going to fight for Teach in Chicago, hey, the town by the lago, oh, they fight for Chicago, hey, so we gotta follow now. Chicago teacher, hey, they fight for tomorrow, oh, Chicago teacher, yeah, we gotta follow, oh, now. I never met a teacher that taught to be rich. So know when they fight, they fight for your kids Know when they strike, they strike So we live in a city that don't benefit just the rich The funds allocated, need rearrangements They fund Lincoln Yards, but they don't fund the babies 95 million to teach the police 100 million for brutality The fight is way bigger than they salaries The things that they fight for, it matters to me A tale of two cities so who walking with me? Let's take the streets, take over the city. They got some points. The mayor had choices, so the teachers got no choice but to raise their voices. The city got money. How do they use it? 
It's quite confusing, the children are losing. Fighting for nurses in all of the schools. They need some librarians in all of the schools. They need counselors in all of the schools. Fund all of the schools. Fund all of the schools. What do you do when a student's deported? It's way more than money, they need some resources. What do you do when your student gets shot? How do you teach when the black is so hot? They raise the rent, mama gets stressed. Student shows up and emotional mess. Teacher is mad, cause he got like 50 students in the class. Homie, you do the math. Real estate builder, he's always chilling. The money they give him should've went to them children. His kids are chilling. How do we never have heat in this building? Who's really the villain? Chicago, hey, the town by the lago. Oh, they fight for Chicago, hey. So we gotta follow now. Chicago teacher, hey, they fight for tomorrow. Oh, Chicago teacher. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 Brattleboro's community radio station. This is Indigo Radio, and we've been talking about um, how austerity and really the cuts to social spending in order to accumulate more wealth is happening all over the world and how people are rising up against it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really interesting um, listening to that song by Rebel Diaz. Shout out to Rebel Diaz. They were here during the, the spring, did a free concert in the public library, right, for the people. Um, but it's interesting to hear about teachers and the role of teachers in defending their communities and standing up for their communities. Um, that's also taking place in Lebanon. You know, the students this week and the university teachers have been in the street calling for changes to the system. Um, And so I think that it's important for the teachers listening to remember that although, of course, we fear for our jobs, we're stronger when we're united. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, One thing that Nick and I were just talking about on that song break is this idea that um, the increased surveillance, I think, is a part of all of this in terms of um, something that Naomi Klein said, that people are not going to accept the things that help them live being stripped from them, mm. that there's constantly going to be protest. And that's something that I think we often forget about here in the United States because there are people constantly protesting, but it's not um, shutting down cities in the way that it does in other places in the world. But that surveillance of the movements are an important thing to talk about. And maybe we can link a whole nother show to this at some point. Yeah, of course. And I think what's interesting, too, is the way that Naomi Klein connects um, natural disasters as a way to impose this economic policy quickly while people are reeling. Mm -hmm. And I think war is the same. Mm -hmm. And that's the, you know, look at what happened after 9-11 was the imposition of the Patriot Act Mm -hmm. and this call for national unity and for national security. Mm -hmm. But what that did was essentially allow corporations to team up with the government and survey us all. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now not only are corporations using the information they collect to sell us more stuff that we 
may not need. But also it's a way to understand what socially and politically is in the minds of people and to control those ideas as well. Yeah. And so um, just before we go out with our closing, I wanted to make an announcement. Brattleboro Solidarity and Spark Educational Institute is having a film showing on November 16th, Venezuelans Under Siege. This is going to be a discuss- discussion and film screening with the producer of the film. And it's about how U.S. sanctions have blocked the Venezuelan people from obtaining food and medicine and um, how people essentially are organizing and what can be done. Um, So with that, I also want to just make a closing remark that, you know, looking at what's happening in Chicago, looking at what's happening in our schools across the U.S., let's just keep it, you know, regulated to the schools for right now. We see the impoverishment of the people around us. There are many children in school that don't have food, don't have clothing, don't have shelter. Um, For me, it is our job here in the U.S. to demand that our government stay out of the affairs of foreign countries. Mm And people in other places need to figure things out for themselves. And we need to figure things out here for ourselves. And the more money we spend on war, the less money we're spending on our kids to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So thank you for joining us on Indigo Radio today. Yeah, I just want to end with a song. This is um, Ile, who's Puerto Rican. And Puerto Rico is something else that we need to be thinking about when we talk about austerity measures and rising up. Puerto Rican resistance for not only for independence but also for control over their land against corporations and the boosting up of the public sector such as education has been a main uh, decry from the streets in in Puerto Rico so this is a song contra todo it's against everything incomes, debts, all that sort of thing for ourselves, for our children. And I'm your host, Richard Wolf.